Section Ten of the Natural History, Volume Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Natural History, Volume Seven by Pliny the Elder, translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section Ten, Book Thirty-Three, Chapters One to Six. Metals, gold, the origin of gold rings, the right of wearing gold rings. Chapter 1. Metals We are now to speak of metals, of actual wealth, the standard of comparative value, objects for which we diligently search within the earth in numerous ways. In one place, for instance, we undermine it for the purpose of obtaining riches, to supply the exigencies of life, searching for either gold or silver, electrum or copper. In another place, to satisfy the requirements of luxury, our researches extend to gems and pigments, with which to adorn our fingers and the walls of our houses, while, in a third place, we gratify our rash propensities by a search for iron, which, amid wars and carnage, is deemed more acceptable even than gold. We trace out all the veins of the earth, and yet, living upon it, undermined as it is beneath our feet, are astonished that it should occasionally cleave asunder or tremble, as though, forsooth, these signs could be any other than expressions of the indignation felt by our sacred parent. We penetrate into her entrails, and seek for treasures in the abodes even of the Marnes, as though each spot we tread upon were not sufficiently bounteous and fertile for us. And yet, amid all this, we are far from making remedies the object of our researches, and how few, in thus delving into the earth, have in view the promotion of medicinal knowledge. For it is upon her surface, in fact, that she has presented us with these substances, equally with the cereals, bounteous and ever ready as she is, in supplying us with all things for our benefit. It is what is concealed from our view, what is sunk far beneath her surface, objects, in fact, of no rapid formation, that urge us to our ruin, that send us to the very depths of hell. As the mind ranges in vague speculation, let us only consider, proceeding through all ages, as these operations are, when will be the end of thus exhausting the earth, and to what point will avarice finally penetrate? How truly delightful even would life be, if we were to desire nothing but what is found upon the face of the earth, in a word, nothing but what is provided ready to our hands. Chapter 2. Gold Gold is dug out of the earth, and, in close proximity to it, chrysocolla, a substance which, that it may appear all the more precious, still retains the name, which it has borrowed from gold. It was not enough for us to have discovered one bane for the human race, but we must set a value too upon the very humours of gold. While avarice, too, was on the search for silver, it congratulated itself upon the discovery of minimum and devised a use to be made of this red earth. Alas for the prodigal inventions of man, in how many ways have we augmented the value of things? 
In addition to the standard values of these metals, the art of painting lends its aid, and we have rendered gold and silver still more costly by the art of chasing them. Man has learned how to challenge both nature and art to become the incitements to vice. His very cups he has delighted to engrave with libidinous subjects, and he takes pleasure in drinking from vessels of obscene form. But in lapse of time, the metals passed out of fashion, and men began to make no account of them. Gold and silver, in fact, became too common. From this same earth, we have extracted vessels of murine and vases of crystal, objects the very fragility of which is considered to enhance their value. In fact, it has come to be looked upon as a proof of opulence, and as quite the glory of luxury, to possess that which may be irremediably destroyed in an instant. Nor was even this enough. We now drink from out of a mass of gems, and we set our goblets with Samaragdi. We take delight in possessing the wealth of India as the promoter of intoxication, and gold is now nothing more than a mere accessory. Chapter 3 what was the first recommendation of gold? Would that gold could have been banished forever from the earth, accursed by universal report, as some of the most celebrated writers have expressed themselves, reviled by the reproaches of the best of men, and looked upon as discovered only for the ruin of mankind. How much more happy the age when things themselves were bartered for one another, as was the case in the times of the Trojan War, if we are to believe what Homer says. For, in this way, in my opinion, was commerce then carried on for the supply of the necessaries of life. Some, he tells us, would make their purchases by bartering ox hides, and others by bartering iron, or the spoil which they had taken from the enemy, and yet he himself, already an admirer of gold, was so far aware of the relative value of things that Glaucus, he informs us, exchanged his arms of gold, valued at one hundred oxen, for those of Diomedes, which were worth but nine. Proceeding upon the same system of barter, many of the fines imposed by ancient laws, at Rome even, were levied in cattle and not in money. Chapter 4. The Origin of Gold Rings the worst crime against mankind was committed by him who was the first to put a ring upon his fingers, and yet we are not informed by tradition who it was that first did so. For as to all the stories told about Prometheus, I look upon them as utterly fabulous, although I am aware that the ancients used to represent him with a ring of iron. It was their intention, however, to signify a chain thereby, and not an ornament. As to the ring of Midas, which, upon the collet being turned inwards, conferred invisibility upon the wearer, who is there that must not admit, perforce, that this story is even still more fabulous. It was the hand, and a sinister hand too, in every sense, that first brought gold into such high repute. Not a Roman hand, however, for upon that it was the practice to wear a ring of iron only, and solely as an indication of warlike prowess. As to the usage followed by the Roman kings, it is not easy to pronounce an opinion. 
The statue of Romulus in the capital wears no ring, nor does any other statue, not that of El Brutus even, with the sole exception of those of Numa and Servius Tullius. I am surprised at this absence of the ring in the case of the Tarquinii, more particularly seeing that they were originally from Greece, a country from which the use of gold rings was first introduced, though even at the present day the people of Lacedaemon are in the habit of wearing rings made of iron. Tarquinius Priscus, however, it is well known, was the first who presented his son with the golden bulla on the occasion of his slaying an enemy before he had laid aside the praetexta, from which period the custom of wearing the bulla has been continued, a distinction confined to the children of those who have served in the cavalry, those of other persons simply wearing a leather thong. Such being the case, I am the more surprised that the statue of this Tarquinius should be without a ring. And yet, with reference to the very name of the ring, I find that there has been considerable uncertainty. That given to it originally by the Greeks is derived from the finger, while our ancestors styled it ungulus, and in later times both Greeks and Latins have given it the name of symbolum. For a great length of time it is quite clear not even the Roman senators wore rings of gold, for rings were given, and at the public expense, to those only who were about to proceed on an embassy to foreign nations, the reason being, I suppose, because men of the highest rank among foreign nations were perceived to be thus distinguished. Nor was it the practice for any person to wear these rings, except those who for this reason had received them at the public expense, and in most instances it was without this distinction that the Roman generals celebrated their public triumphs. For whereas an Etruscan crown of gold was supported from behind over the head of the victor, he himself equally was the slave, probably, who was so supporting the crown, had nothing but a ring of iron upon his finger. It was in this manner that C. Marius celebrated his triumph over Jugartha, and he never assumed the golden ring, it is said, until the period of his third consulship. Those two, who had received golden rings on the occasion of an embassy, only wore them when in public, resuming the ring of iron when in their houses. It is in pursuance of this custom that even at the present day an iron ring is sent by way of present to a woman when betrothed, and that, too, without any stone in it. For my own part, I do not find that any rings were used in the days of the Trojan War. At all events, Homer nowhere makes mention of them, for although he speaks of the practice of sending tablets by way of letter, of clothes and gold and silver plate being kept laid up in chests, still he gives us to understand that they were kept secure by the aid of a knot tied fast, and not under a seal impressed by a ring. He does not inform us, too, that when the chiefs drew lots to ascertain which one of them should reply to the challenge of the enemy, they made use of any rings for the purpose, and when he enumerates the articles that were manufactured at the forge of the gods, he speaks of this as being the origin of fibulae and other articles of female ornament, such as earrings, for example, but does not make any mention of rings. 
whoever it was that first introduced the use of rings, he did so not without hesitation, for he placed this ornament on the left hand, the hand which is generally concealed, whereas, if he had been sure of its being an honourable distinction, it would have been made more conspicuous upon the right, and if anyone should raise the objection that this would have acted as an impediment to the right hand, I can only say that the usage in more recent times fortifies my opinion, and that the inconvenience of wearing rings on the left hand would have been still greater, seeing that it is with the left hand that the shield is held. We find mention made, too, in Homer, of men wearing gold plated with the hair, and hence it is that I am at a loss to say whether the practice first originated with females. Chapter 5. The Quantity of Gold Possessed by the Ancients At Rome, for a long period of time, the quantity of gold was but very small. At all events, after the capture of the city by the Gauls, when peace was about to be purchased, not more than one thousand pounds weight of gold could be collected. I am by no means unaware of the fact that in the third consulship of Pompeius, there was lost from the throne of Jupiter Capitolinus two thousand pounds weight of gold, originally placed there by Camillus, a circumstance which has led most persons to suppose that two thousand pounds weight was the quantity then collected. But, in reality, this excess of one thousand pounds was contributed from the spoil taken from the Gauls, amplified as it was by the gold of which they had stripped the temples in that part of the city which they had captured. The story of Torquatus, too, is a proof that the Gauls were in the habit of wearing ornaments of gold when engaged in combat, from which it would appear that the sum taken from the Gauls themselves and the amount of which they had pillaged the temples were only equal to the amount of gold collected for the ransom and no more and this is what was really meant by the response given by the augurs, that Jupiter Capitolinus had rendered again the ransom twofold. As we were just now speaking on the subject of rings, it may be as well to add, by way of passing remark, that upon the officer in charge of the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus being arrested, he broke the stone of his ring between his teeth and expired on the spot thus putting an end to all possibility of discovering the perpetrator of the theft. It appears, therefore, that in the year of the city, 364, when Rome was captured by the Gauls, there was but two thousand pounds weight of gold at the very most, and this, too, at a period when, according to the returns of the census, there were already one hundred and fifty-two thousand five hundred and seventy-three free citizens in it. In the same city, too, three hundred and seven years later, in gold which C. Marius the Younger conveyed to Prineste from the temple of the capital when in flames, and all the other shrines amounted to thirteen thousand pounds weight, such being the sum that figured in the inscriptions at the triumph of Scylla, on which occasion it was displayed in the procession, as well as six thousand pounds weight of silver. The same Scylla had, the day before, displayed in his triumph fifteen thousand pounds weight of gold and one hundred and fifteen thousand pounds weight of silver, the fruit of all his other victories.
Chapter 6. The Right of Wearing Gold Rings It does not appear that rings were in common use before the time of Cnaeus Flavius, the son of Annius. This Flavius was the first to publish a table of the days for pleading, which, till then, the populace had to ascertain each day from a few great personages, the son of a freedman only, and secretary to Appius Caecus, at whose request, by dint of natural shrewdness and continual observation, he had selected these days and made them public. He obtained such high favour with the people that he was created curule aedile, in conjunction with Quintus Anicus Prinestinus, who a few years before had been an enemy to Rome, and the exclusion of C. Potilius and Domitius, whose fathers respectively were of consular rank. The additional honour was also conferred on Flavius, of making him tribune of the people at the same time, a thing which occasioned such a degree of indignation that, as we find stated in the more ancient annals, the rings were laid aside. Most persons, however, are mistaken in the supposition that on this occasion the members of the equestrian order did the same, for it is, in consequence of these additional words, quote, the phalari too were laid aside as well, end quote, that the name of the equestrian order was added. These rings, too, as the annals tell us, were laid aside by the nobility, and not by the whole body of the senate. This event took place in the consulship of P. Sempronius and P. Sulpicius. Flavius made a vow that he would consecrate a temple to Concord if he should succeed in reconciling the privileged orders within the plebeians. And as no part of the public funds could be voted for the purpose, he accordingly built a small shrine of brass in the Grae Costatis, then situate above the Comitium with the fines which had been exacted for usury. Here, too, he had an inscription engraved upon a tablet of brass to the effect that the shrine was dedicated 203 years after the consecration of the capital. Such were the events that happened 449 years after the foundation of the city, this being the earliest period at which we find any traces of the common use of rings. A second occasion, however, that of the Second Punic War, shows that rings must have been at that period in very general use, for if such had not been the case, it would have been impossible for Hannibal to send the three modii of rings, which we find so much spoken of, to Carthage. It was through a dispute, too, at an auction about the possession of a ring, that the feud first commenced between Caipio and Drusus, a dispute which gave rise to the social war and the public disasters which thence ensued. Not even in those days, however, did all the senators possess gold rings, seeing that, in the memory of our grandsires, many personages who had even filled the praetorship wore rings of iron to the end of their lives. Calpurnius, for example, as Fenestella tells us, and Manilius, who had been legatus to Caius Marius, in the Eugothene War. Many historians also state the same of L. Fufidius, he to whom Scaurus dedicated the history of his life. In the family of the Quintii, it is the usage for no one, not the females even, ever to wear a ring, and even at the present day, 
the greater part of the nations known to us, peoples who are living under the Roman sway, are not in the habit of wearing rings. Neither in the countries of the East nor in Egypt is any use made of seals, the people being content with simple writing only. In this, as in every other case, luxury has introduced various fashions, either by adding to rings gems of exquisite brilliancy and so loading the fingers with whole revenues, as we shall have further occasion to mention in our book on gems, or else by engraving them with various devices, so that it is in one instance the workmanship, in another the material, that constitutes the real value of the ring. Then again, in the case of other gems, luxury has deemed it no less than sacrilege to make a mark even upon them, and has caused them to be set whole, that no one may suppose that the ring was ever intended to be employed as a signet. In other instances, luxury has willed that certain stones, on the side even, that are concealed by the finger, should not be closed in with gold, thus making gold of less account than thousands of tiny pebbles. On the other hand, again, many persons will admit of no gems being set in their rings, but impress their seal with the gold itself, an invention which dates from the reign of Claudius Caesar. At the present day, too, the very slaves even increase their iron rings with gold, while other articles belonging to them they decorate with pure gold, a license which first originated in the Isle of Samothrace, as the name given to the invention clearly shows. It was the custom at first to wear rings on a single finger, only the one namely that is next to the little finger, and this we see the case in the statues of Numa and Servius Tullius. In later times, it became the practice to put rings on the finger next to the thumb, even in the case of the statues of the gods, and more recently again, it has been the fashion to wear them upon the little finger as well. Among the peoples of Gallia and Britannia, the middle finger, it is said, is used for this purpose. At the present day, however, among us, this is the only finger that is accepted, all the others being loaded with rings, smaller rings even being separately adapted for the smaller joints of the fingers. Some there are who heap several rings upon the little finger alone, while others again wear but one ring upon this finger, the ring that sets a seal upon the signet ring itself, this last being kept carefully shut up as an object of rarity, too precious to be worn in common use, and only to be taken from the cabinet as from a sanctuary. And thus is the wearing of a single ring upon the little finger no more than an ostentatious advertisement that the owner has property of a more precious nature under seal at home. Some, too, make a parade of the weight of their rings, while to others it is quite a labour to wear more than one at a time. Some, in their solicitude for the safety of their gems, make the hoop of gold tinsel and fill it with a lighter material than gold, thinking thereby to diminish the risks of a fall. Others, again, are in the habit of enclosing poisons beneath the stones of their rings, and so wear them as instruments of death. Demosthenes, for instance, that greatest of the orators of Greece. And then, besides, how many of the crimes that are stimulated by cupidity are committed through the instrumentality of rings? 
how happy the times, how truly innocent, in which no seal was ever put to anything. At the present day, on the contrary, our very food even and our drink have to be preserved from theft through the agency of the ring, a result owing to those legions of slaves, those throngs of foreigners which are introduced into our houses, multitudes so numerous that we require the services of a nomenclator even to tell us the names of our own servants. Very different was it in the times of our forefathers when each person possessed a single servant only, one of his master's own lineage, called Marsipor or Lucipor, from his master's name, as the case might be, and taking all his meals with him in common, when, too, there was no occasion for taking precautions at home by keeping a watch upon the domestics. But at the present day, we not only procure dainties which are sure to be pilfered, but hands to pilfer them as well, and so far is it from being sufficient to have the very keys sealed that the signet ring is often taken from off the owner's finger while he is overpowered with sleep or lying on his deathbed. Indeed, the most important transactions of life are now made to depend upon this instrument, though at what period this first began to be the case I am at a loss to say. It would appear, however, so far as foreign nations are concerned, that we may admit the importance attached to it from the days of Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, whose favourite ring, after being thrown in the sea, was recovered from a fish that was caught, and this Polycrates, we know, was put to death about the year of our city 230. The use of the ring must, of necessity, have been greatly extended with the increase of usury, one proof of which is the usage still prevalent among the lower classes of whipping off the ring the moment a simple contract is made, a practice which takes its date, no doubt, from a period when there was no more expeditious method of giving an earnest on closing a bargain. We may therefore very safely conclude that though money was first introduced among us, the use of rings was introduced very shortly after. Of money, I shall shortly have occasion to speak further. End of section 10